Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles. I'm the Managing Director of B Squared and the host of the Sendcast. For those new to the podcast, welcome to the Sendcast. The aim of this podcast is simple. We want to reach lots of people and help you all learn more about special educational needs and disability. We are here to help you whether you work in schools, support services, or you might be a parent or a carer. In this episode, my guest is the one and only Dr. Susie Nyman. Susie is the curriculum manager at the Sixth Form College, Farnborough, and she has spent her teaching career really looking at how people learn and adapting her teaching to support all pupils. In this episode, we're discussing using Rosenshine's principles of instruction with students with SEND. The Sendcast is created and produced by us here at B-Squared. We help show the small sets of progress pupils with SEND make. And if you're a primary school struggling to show progress or struggling to identify where a pupil isn't making progress, we can help you. Did you know you can also use B-Squared's assessment software for all pupils in primary schools? You can now assess all pupils in one system, saving you time and money. Visit the B-Squared website or click on the meeting link in the show notes to book a meeting with me to take you through our assessment software. Let's get on with the podcast. In this week's show, we're discussing Rosenshine's principles of instruction and how they can be used with pupils with SEND. My guest is Dr. Susie Nyman, the curriculum manager at the Sixth Form College in Farnborough. She is passionate, without a doubt about discovering how children learn and supporting them in ways which enable them to succeed. She has provided training to PGCE students at Kingston University at a number of local schools and colleges on teaching strategies. She also delivers talks on multi-sensory techniques around the world. And if you've listened to a podcast with Susie before, you'll know that anything could happen as she always makes them fun. She already has her thinking cap on. Welcome to the show, Susie. Thank you very much, Dale. I had to put my thinking cap on here for this particular one because it is quite complicated, Rose and Shine. So I thought I'd bring my old thinking cap with me that I bought in Southampton once when I was down there. And um, off we go on with the show. So in 2010, Barrack Rosenshine released Principles of Instruction based on lots of research and observations. And he identified 17 instructional procedures to enable learning to occur. And from these procedures, he identified 10 principles. Now, these principles support all students. So how different are these principles for supporting pupils with SEND? Well, with SEND, Dale, they might have difficulty with phonological awareness. So it's a difficulty with decoding print, particularly with those unknown words that they can't really see visually. And what I found with my students in the recent anatomy exam, they couldn't read the word esophagus and they also found difficulty with the word cirrhosis, where you've got cirrhosis of the liver. So to guide those students through that practice and actually maybe get them to use a scanning pen when they're doing their exam so that they can actually decode that information and hear that word. They might be looking to find a particular word and they might use a long-winded description in order to use that word. So then actually with that, maybe give them the keywords, might have a keyword on a key ring. You might have them around the room so that they can see them clearly and match the word to a picture so that they can remember it more easily. That'll help them with their independent practice and also to get a higher success rate and be able to access that paper and access all those lovely questions and get all the lovely marks. 
someone with SEND might have difficulty with short-term memory where they're having difficulty storing information for a short period of time. And that could be, for example, copying information for a book or trying to work something out in their pack that they don't understand the language they need to go over it again. Recently, I was working with a student and she found it difficult to remember information from a video, even though it was only five five minutes long. And so I converted that video into a transcript with a keyword so that she could actually access that information. So we're providing that material in a different way and processing it using lots of different small steps in order to help them access it and be able to retrieve it and use it in the future. They might have difficulty with working memory. So remembering information and processing that information for their activity at the same time. So for that, you might provide models. And I have lots of models. I have lots of models in my bag. Oh, here's one I prepared earlier. Dale didn't know this one was coming out. (laughs) It's actually a squeezy worm. And I use this model for teaching the digestive system. And this could be the small intestine where you've got villi there to increase the surface area. Okay, so models there. What is processing speed? They might be looking at processing speed, whereby it takes a lot longer to complete that task. So they might have to be given more time to do it. Sometimes we write instructions on a mini whiteboard so that they, if they've got bad working memory and processing speed, they've got more idea of what they're doing. They can then take photos of those instructions or tasks and then work on that later at home or in in the IT centres. We might provide scaffolds as well to help them answer exam questions. Oh, here's one I prepared earlier. This is some scaffolding. It's actually a play den, and it's got green and blue balls, so you could use it as a sodium chloride lattice, but you could also hang things off here, for example, the exam question, or other props that you want the students to use in class. So... There we go. We've got models, scaffolds, and then we've got organisation. You know, dyslexic students find it really difficult with organisation. So it's quite nice to be able to provide them a framework for answering exam questions and writing essays. Some subjects ask you to put point, example, explanation, relate. Some point, example, explanation, link. Some have point, example, context, a link. They use context a lot in psychology. So they need to be helped. They need help with organisation. You might ask them questions to make sure that they understand what they've got to do. And also check for that student understanding, because sometimes you've still got them looking at you blank at the back of the class. They still don't know what they're doing. And you couldn't have to go over it many, many times in order for them to understand and in many, many different ways. So today, Dale, we're going to start with what is neurodiversity? Good old neurodiversity. Is that okay with you? That's great. Great, because you've got to know about neurodiversity in order to apply rose and shine to neurodiversity. Okay, so neurodiversity is a relatively new. It first appeared in print in 1998, and it's attributed to Judy Singer. An Australian social scientist, it has its roots in the social model of disability, which sees the concepts of disability as rooted in society rather than in the individual. And it's useful to see it in terms of other labels which have been used in the past and still used today. 
to link to cognitive function, to learning and behaviour. So it includes learning disabilities, MBD, minimal brain function or ABD, atypical brain development, all of which sound overtly medical and have negative connotations. Most people probably agree the term neurodiversity sounds much more positive. You're looking at ADHD, ASD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, so many different conditions here. They might Neurodiversity might encompass autism, ADHD, ADHD, as I said before, dyscalculia, dyslexia, epilepsy, developmental dis- delay, um, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, intellectual disability, Tourette's and tics. Okay. And it's really important for teachers to be aware of neurodiversity in their students within the classroom. And you can spot them. And quite often you're looking at students in the class, you might have one in the corner that's a lot slower than the others. Quite often you'll explain what you have to do, the task in, in, in hand, and all of a sudden Elizabeth puts her hand up, oh, Susie, I still don't understand what you've asked me to do. So you know you've got to go over to her again. And then you've got Mary that you've already explained it to Elizabeth and you've got to go to Mary again and then explain it again, put her task on a little mini whiteboard. It could be you've got to do it again in a completely different way because she doesn't get it. And she might have ADHD and she's faffing about and talking to the others and she hasn't quite taken on board what she's got to do. So you have to be really aware of those, you know, neurodiversities in the classroom. I think with neurodiversity, it's important to remember that it's a difference. Mm. Not necessarily a deficit. And it can usually, you talked about in there about the community and the social side of things, mm. is it can be based, the, and I think I read somewhere this person said they have two IQs, mm. which was quite interesting. Mm. One where everything is great, and then one where they're struggling. And it is that, that sometimes they could be doing perfectly well and then change a couple of things, change the situation, and they now cannot engage, cannot respond and things like that. So it, it's understanding what what impacts that person with that neurodiversity, what is a good environment versus what is a bad environment and understanding what those differences are so we can try and keep them in the good environments, make the environment better for them so they, they, the barriers aren't there. Yeah, it could be someone with autism, for example, that doesn't like noise in the classroom, so you've got to keep it quiet it might be useful to actually speak to that child and say, how would you like me to answer the question? Sorry, how would you like me to, to ask you a question? Do you want to sit near the wall? Do you want to sit near the door? Is there a particular colour paper you want to use? What format would you like to use? Do you want to use assistive technology? To find out from them what would be the best way to work with them in the classroom and see what their difficulties are and how you can overcome them. So with specific learning difficulties, you might have the input, visual perception, auditory perception. They might have visual processing difficulties. They might have auditory processing difficulties. And I'm really aware that when you give someone an instruction, it might be a written instruction. In my packs, my packs always have big font in it so that they're not crowded so that student can understand those packs. Other packs they might use in college, they might use a smaller font. And having a lot of information on the page is difficult for dyslexic students to understand. That auditory perception, when you're speaking to them and you're introducing that key terminology and they don't understand it, you've got to sort of pause and explain what that terminology is in order for them to be able to access the information. We've got for integration, sequencing, organisation and abstraction, sequencing, blood flow through the heart, students find it difficult, we might use post-it notes. Organisation, organising what work they've got to do. They might come up and say, 
oh, I'm not sure what I've got left to do. They might have done P1, P2, P3, for example. They've got to do P4 and P5. Actually highlighting, that's what you've got left. Abstraction, abstracting the information from an article. There could be a really interesting article in Nursing Times, but that is so complex, the language they're using in there. How are they going to get that information? I've had girls come up to me and say, oh, I've got this 120-page document I've got to read by tomorrow about, and it might be something to do with midwifery or something like that. How am I going to read it? I said, you've got to just take the keywords out and skim read it and look through it carefully. And they might find that quite difficult. Then you've got memory, short-term memory, long-term memory, moving from the short to the long so that for their exams, they can access the information and retrieve it and use it. And then we've got output, motor and oral. And so, for example, I remember the teacher saying to me, your son's really good in class. He can speak about a topic in history really well. But his writing looks like a spider's crawled over the page. What are we going to do about it? And it could be that that student's got to use a computer, get access arrangements, use a computer for their um, exams. Or it could be if they are really good orally, they might use programs such as Text Help Read and Write so that they can talk to the computer and then that will type it up for them. I always used to hear is, he's really good in class, but we're just not seeing that in his work. There might be a barrier there. That's a phrase yeah. I, used to, I used to personally hear that a lot when I was a child is, mm. but we don't see it in his work. It's like, might have been a barrier there that is preventing me put that information down on paper for some reason. And it might be that I'm not sure. Yeah, so, so sometimes when, if you're asking a difference between their knowledge mm. and you know they know it, but you look at the paper and it's not there, there could be a difficulty there. So they need modelling, modelling and scaffolding, don't yep. they? For you to show them a typical answer, why that answer is. And I think there's a lot in decoding exam questions and teaching students how to decode the language in exam papers, how to decode those exam questions, coming back to the command verbs what I've spoken to you about before, what's identify, name and list, describe, explain, put the word because in, put in the how and the why, what does evaluate mean, the pros and the cons. And it's very mathematical. If you know what those words mean, you then know how to set yourself up to answer the question. But if you're not taught that, you can lose all those lovely marks. So here I've got the main weaknesses and difficulties, processing speed. And so you might be in class and you give the students an exam question to answer. You know, the clever ones will have read the question, worked it out and will know the answers. But if you've got slow processing speed, you've got to work out what does that mean? What does explain mean? What does, what does comparison mean? Recently in a course I've been running called How to Become a Grade Riser, they'll say, well, we've done the similarities, but we haven't done the differences, you know. And so knowing what that word means so that they can work it out. Short-term memory, short-term, what you've got to remember in order to answer that question. Sequencing, dyslexic students find sequencing difficult. And so I quite often put keywords on post-it notes for sequencing processes. It could be something like the formation of Oxbow Lake. Visual perception and um, processing, they might have difficulty with that. Auditory perception processing, laterality difficulties, organisation, decoding the written language. And I think that's the biggest, I think that's the biggest thing is decoding that language, decoding what's in the textbooks, decoding what they need to write for their exam questions, organising how many marks, how many minutes, you know, what they're going to write, how long they're going to spend on it. So 
dyslexia is neurological. You've got reading, writing, and comprehension difficulties. You've got processing, such as visual and auditory processing difficulties, memory and sequencing. But quite often, organisation, so many times my son will go to school and he'll phone me up, oh, mum, I need my trumpet today. And so you would have taken him to school or there's a bit of rugby kit missing. And so the organisation is quite difficult. He's much better now. He's really organised, which is good. But when working with these students with SEND, it's really important to know their strengths and their superpowers. That's the thing is with neurodiversity, it's not necessarily a deficit. It's a difference. So where they can't do some things, they can do other things much better. They can see the bigger picture and you're sitting there in a meeting and people are scrappling around how to put things together and you say, oh, well, it all works like this. And they go, oh, oh yeah, of course it does. Business entrepreneurs, you've got people like Jamie Oliver, you've got... Uh, Mr. Dyson, Mr. Mr. Dyson. Musk. Yes, Mr. Musk. Yes, many of them. Branson. Branson, he's the one I was thinking of, yeah. I could go for a long list, finally, actually, when you think of it. There is a very long list mm. of neurodiverse very successful entrepreneurial people. Yeah. Highly creative with vivid imagination. Um, I might be dyslexic, you know. Never thought. Might when I get to 60, I might be tested just to find out. <laughs> That'd be interesting. Because I am way out of the box. I'm very creative. Great at telling, remembering and analysing stories. Friday afternoon on the chair, I do the Ronnie Corbett show. <laughs> and I do my two Ronnie's afternoon show of stories and case studies with my puppets and link it together because Friday afternoon can be quite boring. But it's quite exciting when we're doing that. Thinking outside the box and problem solving, great conversationalists and empathisers, good spatial knowledge and pattern recognition, picture thinkers and sharper peripheral vision. And I remember as a chemist learning some very complex chemical structures and putting stories and cartoons around the edge in order to remember them. That's the way I found it much easier. But with these students you're going to have, they're going to have weaknesses and difficulties, and you have to be aware of those. And it could be processing speed, short-term memory, sequencing, visual perception processing, auditory perception and processing, laterality difficulties, organisation, but decoding that written language. And if you can't access the language in the question, you can't answer the question. So it is important. There are difficulties, but there's also strengths. And sometimes you might see that they get it and, oh, yeah, we're great here. They get it. They understand it. And it might be during a discussion they're there. But then it's, if it's not coming out in that written work, that's not going to be showing in the exams. Yeah. And I remember my son was not very good at writing essays. And the teacher said, oh, he's got to go home and write this essay. And I thought, oh, no, here we go again. It's just going to be awful because he just doesn't want to do it and he can't do it and he just gets it all wrong. So we sat in the kitchen and he had to write a story about a forest and walking through a forest. And we lived in a village which was surrounded by forests. And so I said to him, shut your eyes and imagine you're walking in the woods. What can you smell? What can you touch? What can you taste? And we made this spider diagram as he was talking. And we wrote out everything he said. What does it smell like? What can you feel the crunchy leaves underneath your feet? And we wrote all these words down. And we had a really good discussion. And as we were talking, we actually taped what he was saying on his iPod. And then he played it back. And then I said, can you write the story now? And he said, yes. And he sat down. 
this boy's writing looked like a spider crawled across the page, but now he did neat writing. He was writing this essay because he understood how to do it. He did his introduction. He did his main content and he kept writing. This boy never, never wrote anything. He only wrote a sentence. He wrote a page and he kept going. And he goes, Mum, I'm going to do a page and a half. And he kept going, can I do some more? I said, don't go over the top, boy. I said, you only need to write a page. And he wrote a page and a half for an essay and we handed it to the teacher next day. And he said, how did you get him to do this? And I explained. We talked it. We thought about the five senses. We did a spider diagram. We taped it. And then he wrote it. So we used their visual perception. We did talking about it. And then he could do it. And it's finding that way for each individual child to enable them to succeed. My nephew got in trouble at primary school because he was asked to write a story. And he just sat there, just staring off into the distance. And everyone else got on and started writing. And he just sat there. What he was doing was he was watching the story in his head. He was seeing where it took him. And he was watching mm. it in his head. And when he finished, he was going to write it down. But everyone else just started writing straight away. So that's what he should have been doing. Mm. But his style was kind of doing that whole process, you know, yeah. closing your eyes, imagining oh, what's going to happen, what's down here, and going on that journey in his head and then go, cool, and then would write it down. But that's not how, but that's his way of doing it. And so sometimes it's, it don't always conform the correct way, but if it works for them, go for it. I think that's really good. Find it that way that works. Yeah, that's what it's all about. Have another Percy Pig. Go on, no, then. There's a few left in the packet. It's always about the Percy Pigs with Susie. Always, always. So once we know about SEND, we then can link that SEND to Rosenshine's principles of instruction. So they're based on three sources. The first bit's on scaffolds and cognitive supports, such as use of instructional procedures, helping those students to grasp those difficult tasks or concepts. Observing master teachers so those teachers that have got really high success rates and providing support and scaffolding to help with knowledge knowledge retention and development of understanding it's also based on cognitive science research and how the human brain acquires and utilizes new knowledge and it helps teachers know about how to endure the limitations of student long-term memory when trying to learn new concepts and ideas. So the science is behind it. Okay. So those 10 principles, it's quite a few, but um, Tom Sherrington, the teacher head, has linked them into four, which I'll summarise at the end. So number one, daily reviews. It's really important to review the information you're going through. Two, new material. Three, ask questions. Four, provide models. Five, guide student practice. Six, check student understanding. Seven, obtain high success rate. Eight, scaffolds and difficult tasks. Nine, independent practice. And ten, weekly and monthly review. And with that weekly and monthly review, I thought it was quite interesting. I was moderating a school recently for OCR, for health and social care, and one of the ladies said, that they would have, say, three lessons a week, an hour and a half of health, and then the second week they were assigned this assessment lesson whereby someone would be paid to sit in a classroom and an assessment would take place. So it could be a learn objective one, you're going to go through that, and then the students sit there for an hour and do a test quietly in exam conditions. I thought it was a really good thing. 
And this goes back to Rosenshein when you're testing and checking their understanding and knowledge. And it's a really good thing to do. And don't forget, a lot of these students have never taken an exam before. No. Because of COVID. So I think it's a really good thing. And uh, working with my team, we're actually going to then deliver a topic, which we did last year, and then have a test at the end. But maybe formalise it a bit more, put it into exam formation, get them all to sit in exam formation under exam conditions. The people have extra time, will have extra time, so that when they actually go into the exam, they'll be more familiar with what's going to happen. So a lot of schools do this at the end of the chapter test. Mm -hmm. And then maybe when they three those three chapters together, they do a bigger test. Yeah, yeah, so a yeah. lot of schools do that. And it, that is that review process, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's really useful. And then you need to keep coming back and reviewing what you did in the first three weeks again, you know, six weeks later, so that you're trying to stop that forgetting curve. You're trying to flatten the forgetting curve. So number one, begin in lessons with a short review of previous learning. Two, present new material in small steps with student practice after each step. Three, ask a large number of questions and check the response of the students. Four, provide models and that's not necessarily models of the heart but models of what that looks like yeah yeah guide student practice check for the student understanding in a variety of different ways and i'll go through them obtain a high success rate provide scaffolds for different tasks require and monitor independent practice and engage students in weekly and monthly review what's so, interesting is when we, we read through these principles in in the world of technology and developing code there's this term called agile development with sprints and scrums and stand-ups. And when you look at it, it looks very similar to this whole process, having a short review. Mm. Where are we up to? Right, this is what we're doing next. This is our next three things. Where are we up to? What are the challenges? And it, you look at it, and it's a very similar thing. It's keeping things short and simple. So let's deal with what's right, important right now but then being able to flick back and look at where we are as at longer reviews. But it is quite, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's good to bring a lesson, begin a lesson with a short review of previous learning. And when the Ofsted inspector came in, we were playing the weakest link and we had a whiteboard just like this one here. And I'd asked the student, so what's the main artery that comes out of the heart carrying oxygenated blood? And they'll write down aorta. Hopefully. Board up, they'd show aorta, and I can check, is that spelling right? Do they understand it? And so that's a quick review, a quick recall. You might use Kahoot quizzes. You might use Socrative, Quizlet, matching activities. You know, you might have a word and then a definition, for example. Quick fire round questions. What's this? What's that? Difference between an artery and vein. And I will talk about later automaticity love that word and and how you learn things automatically and when i was at school i learnt my tables by the age of eight wow and so i knew up to 12 by the age of eight and um the mistress said well, what are we going to do now you've done that you're supposed to do that you know when you finish primary school right susie learn your 13 14 15 16 17 18 19 20 i was like oh, i've got to do this so I remember being at home, learning the first half of the tables for each number from 12. So 13, 14, 15. And I remember doing my 15 times table. Once 15, 15, 2, 15 to 30, 3, 15 to 45, 4, 15 to 60. And would you believe it, at the Donkey Derby on Sunday, this man comes up and he says, 
I want these four plants. I said, oh, okay. He said, they're £1.50 each. How much is it? And I said, six quid. And he said, are you sure? I said, yeah, of course I'm sure. I know my 15 times table. Once 15 to 10, 2 15 to 30, 3 15 to 45, 4 15 to 60. Therefore, it's six quid. He goes, are you sure? And I went, of course I'm sure. I said, my dad is Jewish and he was an antique dealer. If there's one thing that a Jewish antique dealer teaches their children, it's how to count the money, my daughter. Of course I'm sure it's six pounds. And the man smiled and he went, okay, six pounds it is. Great. Sorry, I just had to put that story in there, Dale. Um, there we go. Never know what's going to come you know from Susie. There we go. Yeah. So but- the difference. But I think with this review thing is you're basically setting up by kind of bringing in what we've learned already mm. is you're saying to them, this is the information we're going to use. So yeah. think about this because what we're going to do now is going to build on this. Yeah, it basically plants them and yeah. tells them. It's like going, it's like sticking somewhere in a city going, right, we're, we're going to go. You're literally saying this is where we are yeah. and we're now going to go forward. That's right. And you need that foundation in order to move on. I quite often ask them the difference between an artery and a vein Artery, thick muscular wall, narrow, lo- narrow lumen, creates high pressure. Pressure is force over area. Therefore, a vein is opposite. So it's thin wall, wide lumen. If it's a wide lumen, therefore it's lower pressure. Um, an artery is like a fast-flowing river. A vein is like a canal. We've got the Basingstoke Canal around here. What have they got on canal, starting with an L and rhymes with blocks? Locks. <laughs> So what do you think the locks are like in a vein? V and V, vein and valve. So you get this automaticity, you get this automatic answers that they're chugging through their head in order to answer exam questions. You get that foundation, then you can build on that in order to remember things and linking it to things that they know themselves. Because they live around here, they would have been to the Basingstoke Canal, they would have seen the locks, and then they can just visualise that and remember it. We might have 20 questions. We might swap, do questions and then swap the papers and then mark them, see how many you've got up 20. That gives me a quick idea of who still doesn't understand it. And, of course, play the weakest link. We might do pair talk, think, pair, share. You think of something, you pair up, you share their ideas and then bring them back to the class. So it could be the sequence of an oxbow leg. It could be the sequence of... The digestive system, think about that, pair it and share it, and using those key words that the examiner is going to be ticking in their answers. And so by doing this, you're going to review and evaluate past performance and reduce cognitive load. That's a long word, isn't it? Cognitive. So it's the quantum of information our working memory can keep at one time. Yeah. So there's only so much you can do. You know, it's very difficult to ask a child to empty the dishwasher, cook the dinner and put their washing in the washing machine at the same time. Well, they can't. They can probably only do one thing at a time. It's important to break it down in sizable chunks so that they can remember what they're doing. And if you do need to give all three at once, if you write it down, they can then read the first one, deal with that one, then come back for the second one and come back for the, you can get it offload in one go, but they can access it in three goes. There's lots of things you can do around that. And I was, I was um, listening to a lady who worked in a special school and she was saying about having a visual timetable and pictures. So in the morning, what they're going to do in the lesson is a sequence of 
visual prompts so that they could see more easily rather than reading it. I thought that was quite interesting. So we've got number two, Rosenshires present new material in small steps with student practice after each step. So only present small amounts of material at any time and then assist students as they practice that material. So if you're doing the difference between the after and the vein, you might get your whiteboard like this and then divide it into two, do the artery in the vein, write it out. You might make the artery in the vein out of Play-Doh and then they can see what the difference is with the artery in the vein. You might have an artery and vein question and I laminate them on large pieces of A3 paper and then they can use board markers and write the answers in. So small steps, but also going over it and lots of different ways that they'll remember it. Learners might write down the small steps. Keywords. Keywords are so important. They are. Knowing what those keywords are, what they mean, how they all fit together. Task, li task lists, again, on the mini whiteboard. There's one I prepared earlier. Some learners may dictate voice notes into their mobile phone to use later. And when we came off COVID, there's a lot of students that were behind with their coursework. And what I got them to do was to download the Google Docs app. And they would sit in the corridor. Oh, my God, I've got pages and pages of notes. And I said, take those notes in the corridor. She had four or five pages. Voice type it. And she voice typed off all the notes in five minutes. And she was so pleased. And from being behind, she then got ahead. We also had a girl who deleted her P1 for her work recently. But she had about six pages of notes. So I got her to, to voice type it in Google Docs. And we did, just did it over lunchtime. I showed her how to do it and she did it over lunchtime. Did all the mistakes, corrected it and had it finished by the afternoon. It's finding that assistive technology is you know, that's going to work for them. Personally, I think technology is so good because if you write a handwritten note and finding the keywords is quite hard, you can do it. Whereas with Word and Google Docs, if you start using the heading, so if you go heading one, heading two, heading three, mm -hmm. heading four, and all that lot, if you go to navigation, which it automatically organises your content, and you've also got, you can find keywords. You can do Control-F on Google or whatever where and then search for the keywords, search for the word you're looking for, and it'll take you. Whereas in notes, you're flicking through, trying to read your own writing, trying to find that word. Technology always wins, always wins to me. So what you can do is, I thought I might mention this anyway, that you can subscribe to the RNIB Bookshare. As a visually impaired person, you can obviously join that. But if you're dyslexic, you can also join RNIB Bookshare. Okay. And you can have access to over three quarters of a million books. And you can download them as PDF, Word, Daisy file. And then you could actually listen to those books rather than having to read them. But if you've got the Word version, you could then use another program such as Text Help Read and Write. And then you can highlight those keywords in different colours and you can collect the clips and then you can have a whole list of all those keywords you need for your subject, which is really good. Nice. Yes. You didn't know about that. No, did I've, you? Just, been, uh, I've just been typing in RNIB Bookshare He's into the useful been, link so I can add that I've in after the podcast. surfing. Okay. So we're going to ask number three, a large number of questions and check the response of all the students. 
So these questions help students practice new information and connect new material to their prior learning. So if they've already learned something that, you know, the, the artery is thick muscle, narrow lumen, high pressure, and the vein is um, thin muscular wall, wide lumen, we can then link the arteries and the veins and what they are to the structure of the heart and the blood flow through the heart. We can pre-warn a student that they're going to be asked a question. You might say, oh, Mary, I'm going to ask you that in a minute. Pause, bounce and pounce, as well as probing questions. You might repeat, reword and restructure questions. You might have a whole class answering questions question using the weakest link boards, such as aorta. Ask lots of different types of questions, such as open, close, direct, um, in order to strengthen long-term memory. But beware of different types of questions with some students. There might be some really difficult questions you're going to ask, and that student's not going to be able to answer it. And so, therefore, you have to be careful about which questions you're going to ask them. When you're looking at the command verbs, identify, name, and list, it could be someone with a low GCSE score. You might try that. You might then get them to describe it. You might get them to explain and build it up. Yep. with more evidence, get another student to support them, work in pairs, share that information. You might get them to sit around the room with some with a high GCSE score next to someone with a lower GCSE score so that they can help one another. I think it's important to ask questions because I know, I think, um, I can't remember who Bodger, but he talks about how people kind of get used to not understanding information. And so then they, they don't ask questions. They kind of mm. like, well, I understood half of it, which is normal, so I'll just carry on. And they can go off in the wrong direction. They can go mm. off not fully understanding a concept and do a load of work, which is actually then reinforcing the wrong information. So after you've shared that information, then spending time asking questions is you're really making sure that every child is on the right page, heading in the right direction with the same understanding before they then actually start to put that information down and do the work. Yeah, I think so. I've got lots of questions here. It's really important to look at that exam question. How are these words used in the exam question? What choices are there? Are you going to look at the pros and the cons? Are you going to choose whether you're going to argue for or against something in, in that question? Are you happy to explore further? This sort of thing that you could ask in the, in the class, explore further why a certain concept happens, why the vena cava accepts deoxygenated blood from the rest of the body. Why is that on the diagram? It's actually... The left-hand side of the page, but it's the right-hand side of the heart. What is anything? What is the femur, for example? What does it sound like? What is atherosclerosis? So you're just asking a quick answer. Can you justify that? Justify why you've said that answer? Why have you said that? Why? What do you think? Why is that? Who did it then? In what way? Can you give it a shot? When someone... It's not quite sure. Go on, give it a shot. See if what you say yeah. and then work out why it's wrong, why it's right. Can I come back to you if they're really struggling? I think that justify one is really, can be really hard. It is. It is a higher order command verb, justify. Can you justify that? For... It's right because it's the right answer. It's, I don't, can you justify that? It's like, you asked me this question, I've given you the answer. It's quite obvious. I, so I, I personally, when you asked me to justify, it's like, I was thinking it's, it's quite obvious. Why do yeah. I have to justify it? It's, what some students here would justify and what you're actually asked would justify can be different things. So what information has told you that is that? That's what you're really asking, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it can be your own opinions, opinions of others and or theory. It depends on what's in the question, really. What do you think? What do you think when 
Adam Henry, who's a Chovis witness, was given a blood transfusion. What do you think? Do you think it was a good idea? Do you think it was a bad idea? Can you back that up with anything? Can you back up why this has happened? Did you take into account the following? Who else said that they've given up smoking? What are the reasons? Explain the poster. What are they called? Mary, what have I asked you to do? Mary, what did I say? So you might have asked them a question, then you're going back. You've given them the task. You've given them an instruction. They're going, Mary, what did I ask you to do to make sure that they've understood what you've asked them to do? What are the pros? What are the cons? Okay. And I've divided the class up before into pros and cons. And I've had one side of the room, the pros of doing IVF, for example, the cons of doing IVF. And then they write an answer on a revision card and then they put it on a washing line at the back of the class and they go up with a phone and they take photographs of those answers and then they can write their essay. Um, do you agree with the argument? And is it true or false and why? Quite often exam questions now, they might have true or false, but the problem with my class is they put the right answer or the wrong answer, but they don't know why. They've just done a 50-50 and asked the audience. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They've, they've played the weakest link or whatever it is, or, or who wants to be a millionaire? That's the one. Yeah. So supporting those students with SEND or low confidence those teachers might worry about questioning, reviewing and checking for their understanding. It's really important for every teacher to know their own class. What are those abilities of those students? What are their requirements? What access arrangements do they have? You need to give those students space and time to rehearse those answers, to know what the key words are and to be confident in writing down what the answers are and going over and over it. And maybe write it two or three times, use the waste paper bin method in order to get it right. Give lots of praise. And of course, when you believe, you can achieve. Yes. They've got to believe in themselves. And I think when you've got things like selective mutism, which you mentioned before, it mm. might be you ask that question to the child, you then ask another question, and you can go up and they might have written the answer down, yeah. which you can then go and read that. So basically, you're still giving them the opportunity, you're still having the expectation of them to be involved in this discussion, this conversation and answering questions, but you're doing it in a way which works for them. That's really important. And number four, provide models. And you know, I've got a whole suitcase full of models, but it's not necessarily models of the eye or whatever, but worked examples to show them exactly how you do it. So here's one I prepared earlier, an exam task board. You've seen this before, Dale, haven't you? Yep saying the student name, the student number, the level two, three, GCSE or level, the subject, paper title, paper number, topic and task. And my students have written a fantastic essay on the digestive system where the question actually said the respiratory. And they've done that in their exam. I am not joking. That has happened. And so it's really important with these models to go through the command verb, say what the command verb means, what the keywords in the question, because when an examiner asks it a question, I've only got a couple of minutes to tick, tick. It's very mathematical what the answers are going to be. How are they going to remember it? What's their hook? Mnemonic, story, song, mind map, revision card or video? What are the key words in your answer? What are the paragraph headings? What is that type of question? So looking at those questions, what questions have come up? What can come up in the future? Is there going to be a multiple choice, short answer, fill in the gaps, tick in the box, diagram, comprehension or other? Are they going to have a longer response question? Is description, analysis, outline, justification, assessment? 
And how are they going to answer those longer response questions? I do the CPD training for OCR and I go through, if it's eight marks, it's probably four points explained. It's not going to be eight points. And so for the students to learn four points well, for example, on a piece of legislation. And if they're looking at the strengths and weaknesses, I've got a page on my board for the strengths and the weaknesses, the pros and the cons, but looking and modeling how many marks, how many lines, how many points, how many minutes, because if they know that, they know how much time to spend on it, okay? And for them to, while they're doing this, think out loud, they're looking at that question. What does that question mean to them? Talk it through, how to solve that example, walk the walk and talk the talk, okay? I mean, I've done a lot of walking and walking and talking the talking before with you, haven't I? <laughs> Sequencing concepts such as the digestive system. What I like about this task board is you can buy, you can go and buy this. You can go and buy this book from Oka Books. And it's a great way of just taking one of those exam questions. And for those who are going, well, how do I answer this? And you can do it on a one marker. You can literally go on a one marker and basically go, right, as it's one marker, this is what I'm going to look for. These are the key bits and work it out. And then do the same for a four marker and a six. And a lot of children will just get this. You'd run it through once and they'll be able to do it on their own. Off they go. But for others, you're going to have to go through it a number of times at different levels, at different speeds to help them understand the process. And after that, they can either use the board. It's a dry whiteboard. So you can get your whiteboard markers out and fill it in. But you can also, it's things they can do once they've got the process in their head, they can kind of do this in their head, will be hopefully. So when they go into the exams and they see this question, they're analyzing and understanding the question before they've mm. even thought about the answer. They really know what is it I'm writing here. I'm not putting down everything I know about the respiratory system. I need to put in my pros, my cons, my comparing, and am I analyzing? Am I showing a preference? What is it I'm doing? It just helps them making sure they're putting the right information down. And a lot of students don't know about this levels of response here. So you've got level one, basic, level two, sound, level three in depth. And how do they access those higher marks? What is examiner looking for? And sometimes in analysis questions, it's a two-part question. And they'll only get half the marks because they've only answered half of it. So it could be discuss or analyze the cause and the effect of this condition. Yeah. Okay. So it's really important to look at that question and see how it's divided up and rather is it a two-part question. Those students can find out if they don't get it, if they think they understand it and if they fully understand it and if they could be a master at that subject, in which case they can teach someone else. Yeah. And then when we're looking at those answers, the pros and cons, point, example, explanation, relate, evidence, explain, is it related to your own opinions, opinions of others and or theory, a case study, a source, use of terminology and have I looked and checked for SPAG. So here with my modelling, Dale, here's one I prepared earlier. I've just brought it out of my suitcase. It's now on the table. Okay, so I was talking about the eye earlier in our other podcast, and one of my students said she just didn't get it. So I went around Guildford one weekend, and I found this piece of material here, and it's that heat-proof mat you put on your table. It's, it's my house. It was the dining table protector that That'll you put the it. tablecloth on top of. Yeah. So one Monday morning, I bought this in and I worked with a boy and he didn't know anything about the eye. And so I coloured it in with him. And then we made different parts to stick on. 
Sorry, I was away from the microphone there. So we made parts to stick on it. And we're learning about the lens and how the lens becomes cloudy when you have a cataract. So here's one I prepared earlier, a clear lens, and I put some bubble pack on another one to make it cloudy. Then he understood what a cataract was. One of the girls couldn't understand where the suspensory ligaments were, so I made them out of shoelaces here. I spoke earlier in the podcast this morning about the girl couldn't understand which bit was the iris, the blue bit there, and which bit was the pupil here. So she actually put the bits on. So I modelled it with her and then she understood it and she could get it. It's the same girl I threw the eye at across the room, <laughs> which I mentioned earlier. And I've deflated the ball now. And then I also made one of my special... Shower curtains. Oh, yes. Here she must have the person who runs a shower curtain shop either is very confused by Susie or is very happy that Susie comes in for another shower curtain. There we go. So here we've colour-coded. This is the size of a tablecloth. And we've made the eye out of a piece of one and a half metre satin. And so here the girl or boy could walk through that eye and describe all the different bits and explain what their functions are. And by the time we'd finished that, that week, she got it. And I think she got it from this, from the bit where I made the eye out of this heatproof mat the best. But the boy really got the idea of cataracts with, yeah. with the piece of bubble pack on the lens. Right, just put that one away. But modelling, we talk about modelling in the scientific, but modelling yeah. in theory is in maths yeah. or English yes. is you are rearranging a sentence together. So where's a sentence? What's the most important part? Well, let's move that to being, and you're kind of going through it together. Or you're going you through are. a maths sum together. So we've said this is how we do division. Now let's go through this together. So yeah. what am I going to write here? And you're just going through that whole process showing you what this is a process you will need to do from now on. They might understand it, but with maths, you always have to write it out a certain way and put things in the right way. So it's making sure that they know exactly where to write the numbers you're carrying when you mark things off and things like that. And going over and over and over again, going over and over again with loads and loads of questions. There's something called Exam Builder in OCR, and you can get access to all the past questions and create your own bank of questions. Only teachers can access that. Students can't access that. They can access the past papers on the website. So going through and modelling what those answers are, giving the prompts like Miss, Mr. Grant or Mrs. Nerg to discuss the processes of life or the planets. My very easy method just speeds up nothing, which is Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune. So having those mnemonics, having those models, going through past questions, but what I also suggest when training is think like an examiner. If you've seen a tick in the box question like, say, on the heart, you might have a fill in the gaps next time. You might have an essay. So look at the structure of the paper. Be aware of the types of questions that can be in that paper. And it's a balanced paper. And then try and make your own questions up and check your answers with your teacher. So number five. Guide student practice. Successful teachers spend more time guiding student practice of new material. Go through it, explain it, and link it, make it relatability, link it to someone, something that they understand themselves. 
Learners require sufficient time to practice retrieval, ask questions and get the desired help. So it's really, really, really important to make sure they can retrieve that information in a way and find that hook, however long it takes to get there. Some students might need easier work because they can't complete that more complicated stuff. They just don't get it. If teachers don't reduce their pace of teaching a lesson, then that that, that student memory is then decreased. They're just not going to remember. If you go too much of a fast pace and you've lost them all, that's a complete yep. waste of time. And, and you might have in that class some learners with very high needs might never, ever understand it. And that's where, you know, that R&OB bookshare thing might come in. They might have downloaded the book and they've got a PDF and they can listen to that chapter at home that evening or something, or on the bus. Yeah. Because they've all got mobile phones, haven't they? They yes. listen to it on the bus. Checking number six, check for student understanding. So that helps teachers to identify any misconceptions students might have. For example, mixing up the structure and function of the atrium vein. And the big one I come across all the time, I've spoken to you before, Dale, is esophagus. O-E-so-phagus. And I've blown that balloon up so many times. <laughs> it's important to assess whether students have understood the learning material or information delivered, such as the parts of the eye. And here, one I prepared earlier, are the rods and cones. Rods are in black, cones are in colour. You get blue, red and green cones and you get black rods. So to explain that cones are for colour, rods are for night vision. And so they'll understand that. And because I've got models here, they can remember it yeah. much better. Students could do a brainstorm or mind map representation to check they've had clear foundation for their learning. So this year we labelled this neuron and we were doing about the neuron and the students didn't get it. They got one out of seven. So what we did, we passed these round class. Here's what I prepared earlier. There you go. Okay. So we had just passed Dale a neuron, a nice giant one here. And what we did was we got the students to hold these. I made them out of material I got from the college shop and then coloured them in with Posca pens. So I said to them, which bit is the cell body? Take it and flash it in the air. So they held it and they shook it in the air so they could remember it. Which bit is the axon? So they'd hold it and they shake it in the air. Which bit? The Schwann cell. So they'd shake it and hang it in the air. Which bit is the dendrites? And then they'll hold that and shake it in the air. If you're as lost as me on those different parts, do not worry. I have yeah. no idea what she's on about. So you've got a model <laughs> of it, Dale. Well, you've got one I heard earlier there. And the students couldn't remember it. So we just got it and then got them to feel it and see where the different parts were. And in the first part of the lesson, they got one out of seven. We then spent 10 minutes with the students holding these neurons, getting acquainted with them, and then asked them to show us which bit was which. We retested the same question. They got seven out of seven. And they could do it and they could remember it because they, they understood it. It is, it is holding it and looking at it, you get the shape more rather than just seeing a picture in a book. It just helps you understand it better in colour coding and just having a bit of fun with it helps that learning be embedded. Sometimes you're going along and you might, with special needs, you might have spit, pit stops or check-ins at regular points in the lesson because you know that student in the corner is going to be lost. So, Jane, do you understand the neurons still? And they go, no, I don't, Susie. So we do it again. 
that you're aiming for 80% success rate. Some of those students won't ever remember it. Some of those you might have to work with on a one-to-one basis at lunchtime. And they might have to come in. Actually, some students come to my lessons twice over. They'll go to the lady next door in a completely different class and they pitch up on a Friday afternoon as well. Sometimes I end up with 24 in the class of class of 19. Sometimes I don't even know them. Sometimes they bring their friends in, but they do sort of mix and match. They'll come to my lessons if they've got stuck with something or they'll go to another teacher's and she'll help them too. It's quite an open door policy, really. You could ask the special needs students, can you explain to me what we are doing so that they could, you can get the information back from them rather than you always telling them what to do, get them to explain it back to someone else. When I told you before, when I was um, teaching the heart at the oratory school, I taught the boy and then he said he would go back to the boarding house and teach all the others about the structure of the heart when he walked into it. Explain it to your partner. Always a good one. Yeah. So if you explain it back to me, you know that you've understood it. You might say, say in 30 words, the process of the blood flow in the heart, now say in 10. You might play that game last man standing. So you ask questions and then when you don't know the answer, you sit down. You can play yeah. lots of different things in order to test people and check their understanding. Definitely. But I think checking for students, I don't think is that you've, you've, you've worked through them. You've now, they've now gone off on their own with some guidance and practice. Now you're kind of bringing it back and just checking, yep, have you all done as we thought we would? And because sometimes it's, you don't know where people have those misunderstandings. If they've struggled with any of that processing or anything like that, it's just by giving them a chance to go through it all and then rechecking, it's just making sure they've understood the whole process, not got caught up on the first few bits and missed the second part. Yeah, I think over the years, being an old pusher, as you know, you know the bits they're going to get wrong. Yes. So you focus on those in more detail and link them more to life events or their own events or, you know, things like the Basingstoke Canal having locks. So you call that a vein. It's having those links and them using those links. And sometimes they're sitting there and they're answering exam question. They're having the chat show to themselves. Oh, that's lying in the page. That's that side of the heart. This is the side of the heart. You try before you buy. Try, you know, you've heard, that, yes. you've heard that show before. But it's really nice when they take that on board and they're walking the walk and talking the talk as well. I think at the end of the day, teachers want to get a good success rate, a high success rate. But do you know what? In COVID, I'm happy they're alive and they've got through the course and, they've, you know, that they're okay. I think, you know, results driven has got a bit different over the last couple of years. It's interesting because obtain a high success rate, you can read as one of two things. Mm. One is... 80% of my children have to achieve. Mm. Or I need to pitch this at the level that 80% can achieve. Yeah, that's what you're doing. Yeah. So you shouldn't be aiming up here because if you're not achieving it, then you're pitching too high and various other issues will creep in. It's with this ob- obtain a high success rate, this is kind of, you're aiming for this, but this is kind of, you've got to look back and go, if I'm not getting success, I'm aiming too high and I need to bring my steps aren't small enough. I'm covering too much topic. I'm covering, that's what this number seven, obtaining a high success Mm, rate is telling mm, me. It's sort mm. of saying, if you're not getting this 80%, Mm. you're aiming too high. You're trying to run before you're walking. You're trying to do all this stuff. This is a bit telling you as a teacher, bring it down, slow it down. 
Yeah, and they might not understand the foundation. And and with um, COVID, you know, there's schools around here, they weren't taught from March until July. You know, they just didn't teach those fifth years. So there's whole sections of the syllabus that they've never covered. And so you might be trying to build on foundations that aren't there. They haven't actually done it before. So you have to be mindful of that. Just do your best. And you might see that they haven't done it before. So you've got to step a couple of steps back in order to build on that. And you've been talking about building on stuff earlier. So Rosenstein suggests teachers are aiming for over 80% success rate. So hopefully that will show that those students have sort of understood the topics and and, and learned those new concepts and can apply them. Because it's not just learning now like a parrot, you're learning parrot fashion. You've got to be able to apply that information, haven't you? And in the real world, when you you go and get a job later on, in life and what you do with those 20% that don't understand that's really hard there's always going to be a few at the end of the day that I still don't get it Susie I still don't get it you know and you've got to sort of go back and maybe put them in a workshop and try a different way and that's what's exciting about teaching is finding so many different ways spending the whole weekend going around the shops in Guildford trying to find props or make props for the girl that didn't understand the eye is they might not get so you might get 20% which don't get the overall aim but you will have hopefully that differentiation that scaffolding so they might not get the overall but actually they've got some way towards it they've Mm -hmm. done it at an appropriate level they've made an appropriate amount of progress for them which although it hasn't met the overall outcome you should hopefully feel success across all the students yeah yeah and to do this, sometimes you have to mix up the groupings. You know, quite often the really bright ones will sit together um, to split them up and to share their knowledge with the others and get them to explain to the others, then be the master for them to explain to the others what the process is. And sometimes you hear in class, you'll give the instructions and you can hear a couple of the brighter ones explaining it to the weaker ones, saying, oh, this is what she just said, this is what she means. And it's really nice when that happens they can relate it to something going on in the youngsters' world. Exactly. They can relate it to Costa Coffee and um, Starbucks or whatever it is they want to relate it to, social media and all those sort of things. And not all learning needs to be simplified. Sometimes those students, they can keep up with it. I've got here, rope learning is still important, you know, in order to learn things. And I remember this is when I first thought about Rope learning. I mean, obviously, my times tables up to the age of eight, I rope learned. Going to school in Greenwich, I was sat moderating one day, and there was a French class next door, and they were going, and then they did the rest of it. And I thought, oh, there might be something in that. And then I thought, oh, I might put it to music. And then the students had to do an exam on equality and diversity. And the first question was always, how would the service user feel if they were discriminated against? And it would be sad, lonely, upset, low self-worth, low self-esteem. Okay. I'm not just going to clap it in class. I did it to JLS. <laughs> Everybody in love, put your hands up. Da, da, da. Okay, I had it on washing lines around the room. There's a girl at the village whose friend I taught 10 years ago. And she said, you taught my friend. I said, oh, yes, I did. I remember her. She said, 
I said, what did she say about my lesson? She said, she just remembers clapping to JLS. She doesn't know why, but we did clapping to JLS in the lesson. I went, oh, yeah, I remember doing that. Um, and so <laughs> when they went to the exam, they would sit there, how does the service user feel when they're being discriminated against? They're tapping on their leg, JLS, and clapping those key words, sad, lonely, upset, low self-worth, low self-esteem. And they remember them. Love it. Work to treat. Love so it. rope learning and clapping keywords has it its place there. So Rosenshine providing scaffolds for a difficult task. So providing models, checking for student understanding makes independent practice. We want them to be able to go away and then be able to do it themselves. So a scaffold's a temporary support that's used to assist the learner. These scaffolds are gradually withdrawn as learners become more confident, but may rely on scaffolds to, to solve difficult problems. So scaffolding means facilitating students' incremental mastery. You want those students to become masters of that skill or concept, and then you're gradually going to take those olds away to enable that student to be able to answer those questions themselves. So those scaffolds might be, for example, keywords, enzymes, biological catalysts, speed up reaction without being used themselves, loaded activation energy, uses the Holocan key hypothesis, etc. So you can have those keywords and then you can fit them into your answers in the question. Okay. French, you might have vocab lists and definitions. I remember with my son when he found English really difficult, his English teacher suggested sentence starters and he just used them. And then he could do his essays, write his essays really well. But thinking out aloud, speaking that, as we said earlier, making audio tapes of what you're going to say, you know, MP3 files or something like that, labelling diagrams, watch those YouTube videos such as that BBC, as I spoke in the other podcast, on monoclonal antibodies that I did with my nephew, okay? Using that as a scaffold and then taking it away and then finally just giving them keywords. Now tell me how to make monoclonal antibodies and so they can do it. But with him, when I, when I spoke to him about monoclonal antibodies, after watching the video, it was when I used sugared mice and I pretended to inject them with the antigen that he then understood it. There'll be one thing that you do that suddenly they have that light bulb moment and they get it. Okay. But I think with that, that scaffolding, and when people talk about removing scaffolding, the one thing, some children will always need scaffolding, but the bit you're scaffolding is constantly changing. So you're scaffolding the first part. Once you've done that, we're now into the second part, that might need scaffolding. So when we talk about removing scaffolding, it's not we're going to remove all scaffolding, it's we're not scaffolding that one area. But as you move them up to the next area, it will always be different scaffolding. If you're doing the same scaffolding constantly, that's not really scaffolding. Yeah, so it could be, for example, you might be teaching something like the nitrogen cycle. So the first process would be the diagram of the nitrogen cycle. You have the keywords. The next stage might be to take the keywords away. You've still got the pictures. You put those words in. Then take that scaffolded picture away just give them the words and get them to draw the picture yeah and put the words and then eventually 
don't give them the words and they draw it all out themselves. And when you do the next, when you do a topic which is similar later on, you might not have to do that first bit of scaffolding because yeah. they're going, okay, so we did this before in the nitrogen, so what did I do the first time? Mm. And they can hopefully use the skills you've taught them via the scaffolding to maybe get partway themselves. Find their own ways. Find their own ways. To learn too and remember it. So we're on number nine, Dale. Number nine, require a monitor independent practice. So they need to complete com complex tasks independently, really take responsibility for their learning. Because if they do, they'll then be able to become independent learners. And you're leading them on to be able to have those skills to move into university or an apprenticeship or employment. It depends on what they're going to do. And when you're going through those examples, what I'd like to do is show them good answers, show them bad answers and why they're bad and the misconceptions of things. You know, that's really important. And practice those complex tasks over and over again. Practice labelling a diagram of the respiratory system. It might be quite difficult until it becomes automatic. To try doing overlearning, overlearning, for example, French verbs, je suis tué, il est, il est, and just keep going over and over and over and doing that. Students require lots of examples. So show them what it looks like, what an answer looks like. Mark, how many points do you put in there? What sort of answers are you putting in there? What other things could you put in there? I've said before that you might have a question in revision cards in red, common answers in yellow and green, and then they can colour code those answers there. And they benefit from step-by-step -step instruction. So if you are answering exam questions, 10 marks, it could be five points described well. It might be three marks and then analysed. I don't know, it depends on how many points that you've got to do. So knowing your students is key to using Rosenshire's principles to support their learning and to monitor their independent practice because every student is going to give you a completely different answer, aren't they? You know, there's going to be common answers like answers to labelling diagrams, but essays could be different. Yeah. You're looking, you're looking for the... Yes, you're looking for the process within that rather than the actual answer. You're often looking for the process of how do they get to this answer? Have they fallen over anything? Have they not taken into account? That's what you're really looking for in those. But it's you've got to read through what they've written to work out that, haven't you? And is that answer explicit or is it implicit? And if it's implicit, you probably won't get the answer. You won't get the mark. It's important for it to be explicit. So Dale today, number 10, engage students in weekly and monthly reviews. Look at their prior knowledge. What do they know already? Sometimes you call it harvesting, harvesting all those ideas together. I create giant mind maps the size of tablecloths. I get banqueting rolls from Costco. Write down everything you know already. Brainstorm. Now mind map it. Make the links. Use words and pictures. Use retrieval and spacing so that we get successful learning and use weekly and monthly reviews. Test at the end of the week, test at the end of the month, come back to it, set weekly homework, check their knowledge and their understanding. And most importantly, that they can decode those exam questions once they've got all that lovely knowledge. That, that number 10, that's important because you're literally going, I've just finished the third topic. Do not ask me a question on topics one or two because they're not in my head right now. 
And that's the thing you're trying to do. You're trying to go, yeah, we've just learned topic three, but you need to be able to recall things we've done from topic one and topic two. And then you might be sitting there going, remember that bit where I mentioned, we'll come back to that later in topic one? That's the bit we did in topic three. So you can now see how topic three impacts topic one. There'll be things like that where things you talk about, you, you're kind of joining a bit, especially with your, your heart and things, you're joining bits together. You are. And I think, especially in A-level biology and chemistry, a dyslexic person needs the holistic view. Yes. They're big picture thinkers. And so it's no use telling you about how alkanes and alkenes react. You need to see, and I had on my, my wall at home when I was doing an A-level chemistry, a whole mind map of all these different reactions and how they fitted together. And I took that to university. And when we did reactions, you know, in lectures, I could see how it all fitted together. And that was really useful for me. I, I personally, whenever I learn something, I need to be able to contextualise it. How does this work for me? What's the point of this? If I don't get it, if I haven't got a context, I, I kind of, I don't want to, I'm not interested. And sometimes you learn stuff. And when you learn through it, you go, I don't get the point of this. And you come back and you're like, because that links in here, you're going, ah, and that, that bigger picture of where that fits in here that actually... Without that bit, you thought it was really boring. I had no point. Without that bit here, none of these five things could happen. It's sort of like, now I, okay, now I'm going to go back and look at that because I now see the point. But you can't always explain the big picture until you've done the little bits. You can't always do it that way. And you can't always provide the context. And I think sometimes when they're talking about aerobic and anaerobic respiration, air, think of an aero. I say to them, what's an aero got it? They've got air in it. So it's, you're using oxygen. And then we talk about anaerobic respiration without air. And I said, anaerobic respiration happens in your muscles, especially, you know, if you're going on a long walk. And I did a long walk through London for Moorfields recently. It was 15 miles. And at mile 12, lactic acid crept in. My legs turned into tree trunks. Yeah. And doing those last three miles was horrible. But we're doing it for a good cause. Yeah. And so we carried on. And when I tell the students about lactic acid in legs turning into tree trunks, they get it. They really get that. So they've, they've experienced that. Yeah, at some point in their life. I don't know when, but yeah, they really get it. So you're providing context and then they understand it. So that's brilliant. So overall, these principles in reality really support SEN because you're not really just, here's a lesson, on you, on you get, you're constantly kind of monitoring everything that's going yes. on. And this process isn't all happening within half an hour. It could in some situations, or it could be over a week. It depends on the topic and things you're doing, all the stuff involved. But it is breaking it all down. So there's constant monitoring. They're not going to go too far on their own, off-piste in the wrong direction. You're always kind of guiding and checking and supporting them to go in the right direction. And it's not always teacher-led. It is... They have that time they're doing it independently, but you're there checking and you've got lots of ways to have just little bits of checks, not full on, let's get you working in market ill, is are you going to be the right sort of answers when I'm asking you questions about what you've been doing? Are you in the right ballpark? Are you in the right area? Cool, it's all sounding great. We can push on. And I think a lot of teachers do this stuff anyway. And that sort of thing, because it came from that observation, it came from research. He just saw what was going on and what's successful. I think a lot of teachers pick things up from various places, but I think what Rosenstein's done is kind of linked it all together. He has. It's, you might be doing six out of the 10, you might be doing seven out of the 10. 
occasionally when it's worked really well, you suddenly realise I bought another two. I didn't realise that was that. And that's why I think when you hear these principles, I read a book on to do with running business and marketing and I read it all and went, oh, that's why what we do works. So we found some things which worked and mm. apparently it's got a name, it's got a process, it's got a belief and it's got all this stuff. You can mm. go on courses about it. We kind of stumbled into it and started doing it that way because it kind of, it worked for us. And I think sometimes teachers will find these things and actually it's got a success. And you might be sitting there going, yeah, I, I do this, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I haven't done that one. I don't do that one. And it might be just one or two things teachers are going to change from this mm. rather than this isn't, hopefully shouldn't revolutionise things for people. No, no, we've taken it all on board for the Prospect Trust. This is why I've spoken about it and we're going to be speaking about it after half term on the inset days. So it's quite a nice thing to go through everything and see how it all fitted together. And it's really a life's work, isn't it? Because I've been doing all this for the last nearly 30 years. Yes. And then you suddenly realise, oh, that's the reason why I do it. Yes. It's all sort of come together, which is really nice. And at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is to get those students to think automatically. I think in some of the answers, you know, labelling diagrams, that ought to just be automatic, bish, bash, bosh, they're the answers. And so having that automatic automaticity and making sure that they're competent and confident with their answers and accurate with exactly what they're writing down. And sometimes it takes longer for those students to reach that automaticity. If you think of a dyslexic student that each time they read that word, it looks something completely different. I remember my son saying to me when we went to a farm shop, he says, Mum, why is there an autistic baker in there? instead of an artisan baker. So if you could imagine that, every time you're reading that word, yes. you're reading the wrong thing. And that's why scanning pens are so useful. But when they're doing the exams, they're going to pick that word up correctly. And that automaticity will be developed by having those daily reviews, weekly reviews, monthly reviews, quickfire questions, end-of-topic tests, past questions, model answers, and things like that. And it all just builds into their confidence, which is, I think, crucial going to the exam, being confident. My daughter doing her GCSEs currently when we were recording this is she goes to exams and she's like, yeah, it went really well. I'm not going to think about it. Okay, but you haven't revised. That's because she's confident. She's looked at the book. She's like, I know this. I know this. Yes. I'm confident. I like, well, and generally for me right now in the middle of GCSE season, it's, her mindset is more important than last minute revision. She's got to go in with the correct mindset. And if all the, all, if she's gone through a load of stuff, like with your exam grade rises, all this sort of stuff, and it's all given her the right skills, mm. even if she comes across something she doesn't really know. She'll be able to work it out. She'll either be able to work it out or at least structure the answer mm. in a way mm. that she's hitting the key points, even if, and it, yeah, and there's been some times where, because some of the exam boards are quite random with some of their stuff. And you're going, how's that question in there? And But she's able to have a go and found out that everyone else has struggled. Yeah. Reasonable um, attempt. Yeah. So if she's used, applied the skills and used everything, it's a four marker. They've got, they've got the word evaluate. Mm. So I've got to compare and I've got to kind of give a decision, all that sort of stuff, because there's a difference between evaluate and analyse. Evaluate implies there's a better one, which you've got. Is that right? Evaluate generally is the pros and cons, strengths and weaknesses, something like that. And analyses. Yeah, so it's slightly different. And she can go in and do that and understand that process and do the rest. 
it will help her out. I think, I think just watching her, she isn't doing huge amounts of revision, which worries me, but she seems to be doing quite well because I think she's got the process down really well. So there we go. So now here, Dale, I've got this book here called Tom Sherrington, Who's the Teacher Head? And he's got Rosenshine's Principles in Action. And he's divided Rosenshine's Principles into four strands. And he argues that these four strands run throughout all of Rosenshine's Principles. We've got strand one, which is sequencing concepts and modelling, which is Principles 1 and 10. Strand two, questioning, which is Principles 3 and 6. Strands three, reviewing material, Principles 2, 4 and 8. And strand four, stages of practice, principles five, seven, and nine. And so when we're looking at this, we'll have sequencing concepts and modeling. We've got small steps, models, and scaffolds. We've got questioning, asking questions, checking the understanding. We've got reviewing, that could be daily, weekly, monthly, termly. Then we've got practice, guide that practice. Look at the success rate. Do we aim rate? Do we aiming for 80% success? And for that student to become an independent learner. And each of Sherrington's strands contains two or three of Rosenshine's principles. Sherrington argues that these four strands run throughout all of Rosenshine's principles. And lastly, Dale, I want to finish with a quote from Tom Sherrington, who is the teacher head. If we're going to be sure all students have formed secure understanding, teachers should not assume that knowledge aired and shared in public place of the classroom has been absorbed, learned by any individual. Obviously, we need to keep checking it, checking understanding, checking those misconceptions. And finally, you need to combat Ebbinghauser's forgetting curve. Keep reviewing and checking and beat the forgetting curve. Definitely. I, I do think I, I'm. I still go on courses, as we all, all do as adults, we go on courses and I go and learn stuff about Microsoft stuff and very technical and in-depth and it's quite confusing and I will ask lots of questions. I find it very fascinating that there's lots of other people in this room not asking questions. And at the end of the course, when it comes to the exams, I generally pass them. But some of the others who've sat there silent the entire week haven't asked any questions. And it makes no sense to me that if you're not asking questions, you must completely understand this. But then how are you failing your exam? And there's a whole other process going on, which is they don't understand things. They kind of accepted this as normal. So you cannot assume. No. You have to be asking questions. You have to be going, what have you got for this? How have you answered this? Because if they're sitting there nodding quietly, writing, making notes, if you're not checking, doesn't mean you've got to check. And some people will check. They'll ask you questions. They'll go, does this mean this, sir? Does this mean this, miss? How does it, does it, we have to do this, does this, with this? And they'll hypothesize. They'll go, so does this mean this will happen? They're like, yes, great. It's the quiet ones who sit there making notes, being quiet. They might be understanding it. They might not. They might be just going through the pattern of this is what I'm supposed to do with not actually understanding it. Unless you're checking with them, not those who are always sticking their hand up, they may not be that, they may not be that learning going ahead. If you're not doing those checks or that, um, that, checking they've got that knowledge in, 
that's where a lot of it will probably be going wrong. That checking isn't happening. I do find with my walk-in diagrams, you go around the room, do you understand it? Yes, do you understand it? Yes. And someone will say no. I don't choose the one that understands it to model it for the rest of the class. I choose the one that doesn't understand it because they're the ones that I've got to show how to work it out. And then they come to the front and they walk the walk and they talk the talk and then they can do it. And if they can do it, the others can learn from them. Learning from another, teaching someone else really helps. But some people just don't like, especially when you're in the working environment and you have to pass this course or the expectation is, or you've got to be seen to be knowing what you're doing. You don't want to be asking lots of questions. You've got to look like you're doing it. You mask that you don't know. And you'll just go through these things. So you might be saying, if the person to the right of you said, yes, yes, I get this. And you're going, oh, okay, I've got, I had no idea. I'm going to say yes as well because I don't want any attention on me. Mm. And they say yes. And the person says no. You go, oh, thank God someone said no. I can now work it out. And you've got these people who just are hiding. They're masking. And it could be an aut- it is autism masking, but talking to Aaron Smith recently, there's dyslexia masking. I would say there's professionalism masking. Mm. Lots of masking that happens. We all hide. We give the answer we're supposed to not the real answer and it's important to be able to understand that people do that recognize it and these abilities to check at different stages and review hope hopefully give stops that assumed understanding going on so dale you can have the last percy susie percy is in the packet he's not anymore he's gone so Thank you for coming on the show today, Susie. It's a pleasure, Dale. You can now eat that while I do the rest of this. Brilliant. Um, So we'll be putting links to things we've mentioned and other things we find useful. So I've written, as we've been talking, the RNIB bookshelf. I will find a link and I'll put a link to Tom Sherrington's book, Rosenshine's Principles in Actions. And also it seems to be the greatest hits of Susie Nyman in there. And you'll find the show notes wherever you listen to this podcast. You'll also find Susie's contact details and links for B Squared as well. And you'll find those wherever you listen or on the website. So thank you for listening. If you haven't subscribed already, please click on that subscribe button. You can follow us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. We are The Sendcast. That's all nice and simple. Now, if you are struggling to show progress for your pupils, if your assessment process is complicated, takes too long, or you just want to see what's it like with Bean Squared, have a look at the Bean Squared website. Book a free online meeting with me so I can take you through our products and show you what we do. We have a range of assessment products to help all schools show small steps of progress for pupils with SEND. If you are a school in England, still confused by the engagement model, not sure about pre-key stage standards or anything else around assessment, get in contact. If you're a school in Scotland on the Curriculum for Excellence and the Milestones you want to show progress, get in contact. And if you're a school in Wales on the new Curriculum for Wales, we have a load of assessment content for you as well. So you can find out all about our online training and conferences as well. You can read our blog, you can watch our webinars. It's all on the B-Squared website. And you'll find a link to the website and to book a meeting with me in the show notes. And don't forget, you can always drop me an email. My email address is dale at bsquared.co.uk. So thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Sendcast. It's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Thank you very much, everyone. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye.